Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When a local woman is found stabbed to death in her home. Someone threw this human being over the edge of a tub to bleed out. The sleepy town of Summerfield, Florida jumps to life. As the details came out, people could hardly believe it. And when secrets are revealed and motives uncovered, he had made a comment before that he would kill her. Investigators have to wonder how long a seasoned killer has walked among them. This person knows what they're doing. There was very little evidence that we could find. But as suspicions rise, the truth becomes harder to find. He said, this is all a scripted scenario here. This is all fake. It's back to a whodunit. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Nestled deep in the heart of Florida horse country is a little hint of a town called Summerfield. Summerfield is a very rural area, a very quiet, very peaceful little place. For these hard-working Floridians, it's a fine place to call home. But if you're looking to visit, try not to blink or you might just miss it. It's a post office, a blinking light, and a convenience store. You don't go to it, really. You go through it. Perched near Highway 441 and as visible as a lighthouse beacon, is the pink home of one of Summerfield's most affable characters, Deborah Rawls. And no one appreciates her more than her son, Kurt Bellamy. My mom was kind of a free spirit. She would just 
take an opportunity to laugh anytime she could, really. So anytime that we had an opportunity to laugh about something, we took advantage of that. Raised in rural Ohio, Deborah Rawls is a small town girl with a big heart. And like so many girls before her, she gave it to a young man in uniform. She was young when she got married. My dad was stationed in Germany, and it just didn't seem like things could work out after that for him. By the time she turns 20, Deborah has an ex-husband and two children, Trudy and Kurt. No one could blame her for seeking out greener pastures. Then slowly my family began to migrate to Florida like the birds, I guess. My grandparents were first. Uh, then I had an aunt that moved uh, to Florida. And so then my mom followed with me and my sister. She was so excited about having a new start. She was a single parent, and so it was hard. Maybe that's why Deborah's older sister, Brenda, is a little wary of her little sister's new man, Jake Rawls. It wasn't good for her, you know, and we could see that. Brenda's never been one to get in the way of true love. Debbie was her own person. Debbie always loved doing things her way. But you know what they say about opposites. Well, their relationship was like most relationships, probably. Good days and bad days. But he was good to my mom and loved her. I was happy for her. After an eight-year courtship, Deborah and Jake make it official on Valentine's Day, 1998. A couple of years later, Deborah and Jake are living in the pink house they built on four acres of Florida heaven. All in all, things are looking sunny for Deborah Rawls. Until an unexpected cold snap hits Summerfield on the afternoon of June 8th, 2004. Deputy Todd Spisher is an 18-year veteran of the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Most days on the beat are nothing to write home about. Typically, our crimes are domestic-related, some residential burglaries, criminal mischiefs. But an urgent call from dispatch brings an abrupt halt to an otherwise lazy day. 911, what is your emergency? Oh, my wife, I think she's dead. I just got home from work and she's stopped building in the bathtub's blood. She's been there for a while because the blood's dry. Buckets of blood and a body in the tub. Officer Spisher knows this time it's more than mere mischief. This is murder. It was a signal five, which means a murder. When we have that kind of a call, you, you get there in a hurry. When we arrive on a scene, everything looks like normal, everyday appearance. There's two cars in the driveway, the front door's closed, and the uh, victim's husband is standing outside by the fence. Yeah. Spisher and his fellow officers take positions around the house. The moment I went into the house, I had an adrenaline kick. I'm looking for two people, an assailant and a victim. At the same time, I'm taking note of my crime scene. You could see that there was an evident struggle. There was some department store grocery bags scattered on the floor. Her shoes were scattered on the floor. And then you start to see um, blood on the floor. And at that moment, you know that what you're working isn't anything short of horrific. 
the trail of blood leads into the bathroom. And that's where we found her draped over the tub. 48-year-old Deborah Rawls lies dead with multiple stab wounds to her back and neck. It's a dreadful sight. It was, it was horrific. Evil in its purest form. It's the first homicide in Summerfield in over two years. There's no way you could convince me a person in Marion County, a neighbor, could do such a thing and leave a body in that shape. Word gets out to Deborah's family and friends. I heard about uh, her murder through my nephew, Curtis. I was coming home from work when I was confronted at the door by my nephew, whom at that time broke the news to me. I had just gotten off work that Tuesday afternoon. It was just about 5 o'clock, and uh, like I normally would, I'd call and just was looking forward to being able to say, hey, what are you doing, Mom? But instead, her husband answered the phone. And he was really frantic. And he said something terrible had happened. And I said, what's the matter? He said, your mom is dead. She's been murdered. And I said, murdered? I'm coming right now. The way my mom's house sits, from the direction that I'm driving, I saw her car and her husband's truck parked in the driveway, but I didn't see anything else. I thought, okay, so maybe it's not that bad. And uh, when I went to make the left-hand turn, the road was just lined with police cars. Kurt's fleeting hope that this is all just a bad dream is dashed. Deborah's son makes a beeline for a familiar face, his mother's husband, Jake. He was a wreck. And at that time, of course, I didn't know exactly what he had seen. And Officer Spisher's been watching Deborah's husband as well. The demeanor of the victim's husband was odd in that it was emotionless. There wasn't any hysterics. There wasn't any anger. Does Deborah's husband have a motive to kill this cheerful, loving wife and mother of two? It's a mystery that will dog local police right from the start. And the answer might just lie in the husband's past. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The brutal murder of 48-year-old Deborah Rawls has sent a chill through the sunny town of Summerfield, Florida. And for these God-fearing folks, it leaves a taste of fear that even communion wine can't wash away. As the details came out, people could hardly believe it. Pastor James Varnum of the Souls Harbor First Pentecostal Church is a source of guidance and comfort for Deborah's son, Kurt. When Kurt called me and told me his mother had been killed, he was absolutely broken. I first prayed with him on the telephone, and then I told him I would be here for him and to just let the law enforcement do their work. That heavy responsibility falls onto the broad shoulders of Marion County Sheriff's most experienced investigator, Detective Michael Mongaluzzo, whose nickname is hardly befitting his nimble investigative mind. Major crimes, Mongaluzzo. My nickname is Mongo. Uh, I've had it for my whole life, and I've got it from my dad because he was Mongo Sr. Mongo has a reputation for cracking the hardest criminals and the toughest cases. The murder of Deborah Rawls will prove to be the most difficult of his career. But first things first, this hunting dog needs to catch a scent. And there's no better place to do that than at the crime scene. When I first went into the house, uh, I noticed uh, a window broken in the kitchen, glass on the floor inside the kitchen. I did a cursory search of the residence uh, and noticed that somebody had went through the drawers and the closets. Did Deborah walk in on a burglary in progress? The victim had some injuries to her face. She had some bruising on her hands and arms, which are indicative of, of a fight, a struggle. The bathroom is surprisingly clean of blood spatter or fingerprints. But one thing is clear. Deborah Rawls didn't stand a chance. The murder was brutal. Uh, one of the stab wounds went through from the victim's back, and it, it came out her throat. So that tells us we're dealing with a large knife uh, and somebody that was strong enough to put the blade of that knife all the way through, through the bone and cartilage. But that's not the only thing the crime scene reveals about Deborah Rawls' killer. When we sprayed the luminol in the bathroom, uh, that is when we saw uh, swipe marks 
over the floor. We saw blood drippings on the sink that were uh, indicative of blood spatter. So he took his time and cleaned the sink. He even used chemicals from the house to clean. Not quite the M.O. of your typical burglar caught in the act. That told me uh, that the person that committed this crime was either in the system when he was afraid of being identified through his DNA, or he has done this in the past and he had knowledge of crime scenes. But there's also a chance that the crime could have been committed by someone close to Deborah, someone with knowledge of the household itself. A significant other of your decedent could be responsible for the crime because they know the comings and goings, the timings of the decedent. Mongo's partner, Detective Chris Hayworth, is a meticulous investigator with a keen analytical mind. Our work styles are very different. He's the Felix on the Oscar of the relationship, uh, if you will, a little odd couple. When you bring us together, it's a meshing of a tremendous amount of different viewpoints and makes it work. Just don't call it a bromance. Myself and Detective Hayworth work good together. I know what he wants on his cases. He knows what I want on my cases. And to solve this case, all of their knowledge will be put to the test. The first challenge, the lack of physical evidence at the scene. While speaking with Mike about the scene work, it had been evident to him that, that there was some cleaning of the scene. There was very little evidence that we could find. No fingerprints and no murder weapon will make it tough to identify the killer. But they do have tire tracks. We noticed that there were two tire tracks going off to the back of the house, around the house. A sign that someone drove around the back of the victim's home. We didn't know if it's a habit of the husband or the decedent to drive around the back of the house, park behind the house. And to further cover their tracks, investigators Mongo and Hayworth want to know what Deborah was up to that day. The second part of it is to establish where and when the victim had been, because the closer you get to the time that they were killed, whoever was with them, that's going to point you in the right direction. It may give them the breakthrough they're looking for. So, obviously, first indications are the last person that we know she was with was the husband. So you immediately go, aha. When detectives pay a visit to Deborah's sister, Brenda, she has plenty to share about her sister's ne'er-do-well husband. None of it good. She had had marital problems for quite some time, and she was always complaining about how he treated her and how she was tired of it. And one night, a few weeks earlier, Deborah called her big sister. She'd had enough. But uh, this last time, things got a little more serious, and I helped her fill out the paperwork to file a restraining order against him. But despite her sister's pleading, Deborah couldn't bring herself to end the marriage. A few days later, she was back with her husband. And I think this was just the last straw for me. And I walked out. And that was the last time I spoke to her. Less than a month later, Deborah Rawls was dead. For detectives Mongo and Hayworth, it's a promising lead. A bad marriage is often a good motive for murder. Early the next day, Jake Rawls is asked to come into the station for questioning, and Mongo thinks he might have his man. I don't look for personality 
Immediately, I size a person up, and I notice that he's a yeah. very large man capable of doing this crime. But Detective Mongo hears Jake out nonetheless. The husband told me that he was at work uh, that day and that his wife picked him up from work around lunchtime. They went and had lunch at a local fast food restaurant, and then she delivered him back to his job, where he stayed for the remainder of the day. Mongo knows from the medical examiner's report the time of death to be between 3 and 4 in the afternoon, smack dab in the middle of Jake's afternoon shift. He told me he was at work and he has a time card, so that gives him an alibi. But Mongo isn't done with Jake just yet. The husband consented uh, and was very cooperative in the collection of his DNA and clothing the night he was wearing. Jake Rawls may not look the part of the model citizen, but he is well on his way to being cleared as a suspect in his wife's murder. Deborah's sister, Brenda, isn't buying the innocent act. The only one that kept popping up in my head was her husband. But then, a stunning revelation cracks the case wide open. And for some reason, it didn't feel right to me. Something inside of me said, something's wrong, this, 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 is, this is not right. A few days after the murder of Deborah Rawls, life in the sleepy town of Summerfield, Florida, is more than a bit off kilter. For Deborah's sister, Brenda, it's even more disconcerting because she believes her sister's husband killed her. After she was murdered, we all had a suspicion that her husband was involved, only because of things that have happened in the past. We all thought that, well, if he can't have her, nobody will. The notion that Jake might be involved certainly crossed Detective Chris Hayworth's mind. When you add everything up and you look at the fact that he's last to see her, first to discover her, and the history of domestic issues, yeah, things don't look good. The only problem? Jake has an alibi for the time Deborah Rawls was killed. But Mongo isn't ready to let him punch out that easy. Even though the husband had a time card, doesn't mean that he was there the whole time. In my mind, it was still possible that the husband left his place of employment and killed his wife and returned back to his place of employment. Evidence technicians examined Jake's clothing for even the smallest trace of Deborah's blood. There was no physical evidence linking the husband to this crime that we had uncovered at that point in the investigation. Jake Rawls is out of the hot seat. After the husband is cleared, we you really start to get very frustrated. And you're like, okay, well, who do we look at now? A sentiment Deborah's son, Kurt Bellamy, shares. Well, you know, when things like this happen, a lot goes through your mind. You don't know who to blame. You want to blame someone. I just felt like unless there's a true break, unless this person ends up telling someone who then tells, I really begin to have my doubts whether it would get solved. As time went on, I began to worry that we may never find Debbie's killer. When investigations hit a standstill, Mongo decides to hit the weight room to clear his head. I like to lift weights as a hobby to relieve stress. It gets the blood pumping, uh, gets your energy up. A good thing, 
because Mongo is going to need all of his energy to follow the one clue that may lead them to a killer. The mysterious tire tracks. At the house, we found some tire prints or marks in the dirt leading up to the grass where we saw the tire tracks going around the house. Could the tire tracks found at the scene have been left by the killer's getaway car? The evidence technicians uh, took photographs of the tire tracks in the grass. Unfortunately for the moment, it's another dead end. But we couldn't tell at the time what type of vehicle the tires belonged to or what type of vehicle made the tracks. But then Deborah's sister, Brenda, has a startling recollection. We learned about the red truck from Deborah's sister. On the day of her sister's homicide, Brenda drove by Deborah's house and spotted a strange vehicle in her yard. I was on my way to deliver flowers to a client, and when I passed by her home, like I always do, I noticed a truck a red pickup truck that was parked directly behind her home. And for some reason, it didn't feel right to me. Something inside of me said, something's wrong. This, this is not right. She would never allow anybody to park their car behind her home because she was trying to grow grass back there. Unaware what's going on inside, Brenda slows to a stop in front of her sister's house but she's on a tight schedule. And instead of turning around and going to check on her, I kept going. I just thought to myself, well, you know, maybe she's got some contractor working there behind her house and maybe I shouldn't really worry too much about it. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. It's a chilling coincidence, but it provides police with a promising lead. They now have a description of what might be the killer's vehicle. Then boom, we're on a red truck. And with a possible murderer in their midst, the folks in Summerfield are more than willing to pitch in. We would get calls from the community for red trucks. Uh, they saw a red truck here, saw a red truck there. We scoured Summerfield in the Summerfield area, and we started just basically enforcing every law known to man with a zero tolerance policy looking for a red truck which means that any proud owners of a faded red pickup truck were sure to get a visit from Marion County's finest. And when we located a couple of them, we came up with the idea of doing a lineup. We would place specific trucks behind the decedent's house, and we would drive the decedent's sister up and down the highway the same direction she was coming from the day that she saw that red truck to see if that was the red truck that she saw. If Brenda can identify the truck she saw, investigators may have their killer. I knew it was a late model truck uh, from growing up and knowing the difference between Chevrolets and Fords. And none of them was what I saw. The killer's red truck is still at large. It's a setback, but far from a devastating blow. That time I felt frustrated, but because she didn't identify any of the red trucks doesn't dry up that end of the investigation, that just means we still have a red truck out there that's responsible for this crime. Mongo and Hayworth are determined to find its driver, and experience tells them that if they rattle enough cages, someone will come forward with the information they need to crack the case. We were putting a lot of pressure on people in the Summerfield area, uh, searching for people with warrants, uh, doing traffic stops for traffic violations, and asking people about this murder. 
And with all the extra heat from the hunt for Deborah's killer, Summerfield's crooks are as eager to end this investigation as the police. So in the criminal world, that's a disruption because I can't sell my drugs, I can't do my burglaries because all these cops are in my area. Even the most humble hamlet can be hiding a seedy underbelly. So they want us out of the area, so what's a better way to get us out of the area? Give us what we're looking for. The pressure seems to work when two weeks after the murder, detectives get a call from a corrections officer at the Marion County Jail. It seems an inmate named Ronald Lipkin has some vital information regarding the Deborah Rawls murder. We get a tip uh, from an inmate, Ronald, who tells us that he is cellmates with someone that was involved in the Deborah Rawls homicide. And he wants to help us bring this person to justice. Well, look at that. Do police have the one con with a conscience? It sounds too good to be true. Of course, in return for helping us, he wanted something in return. To either get out of jail or something on his sentence or money. With no other leads, it's a deal detectives are willing to consider. But they won't just take the informant's word for it. They'll need proof. Ronald agrees to wear a wire and go and talk to him about the homicide. The jailhouse sting is set in motion. And what happens next will turn this investigation upside down. The residents of Summerfield, Florida, are still reeling from the news of Deborah Rawls's grisly murder. Bishop Barnum of the Souls Harbor First Pentecostal Church echoes the sentiments of the citizens. There was great concern in the community as time went by after Deborah was killed and the killer was not caught. We prayed that they would be caught soon. Two months have passed since Deborah Rawls' murder, but detectives Mongo and Hayworth are hot on the trail of a new lead. A jailhouse informant has fingered his cellmate, a man named James Fontaine, as copping to the murder of Deborah Rawls. You have to verify and go the extra mile to verify what a jailhouse snitch tells you, because their only after one thing is to get out of jail or prison. And James happens to drive a red pickup truck, a match to the truck Deborah's sister spotted behind Deborah's house on the day of the murder. Detectives hope this is the break they've been looking for. When we started doing a background on him, he looked like a very good suspect because he has a long rap sheet with a lot of criminal behavior, including burglary. So Mongo and Hayworth hatch up a devious plan. The inmate that came forward, uh, Ronald, agreed to wear a listening device or a wire, if you will, uh, to gather more information from James. Ronald is wired with a hidden recorder and returns to his cell. All Mongo and Hayworth can do is wait to see if James Fontaine is still feeling chatty. And the sting appears to have worked like a charm. When we first heard the tape, obviously we're excited. It was apparent on that recording, James confessed to killing the victim in this homicide. On the recording, James Fontaine says that it all started as a plan to burglarize Deborah's home. But when Deborah surprised him, that plan ended in murder. The hair-raising details of the crime alarmed the detectives. James said things about the crime that wasn't published. Only certain people knew about. The detectives on the case 
the evidence technicians on the case, and the deputies at the scene. So to have that information leads me to believe you're there. You know all about the homicide. You're guilty. Mongo and Hayworth are inches away from making an arrest in the Deborah Rawls murder. James Fontaine is taken from his cell at the Marion County Jail and brought into the detective bureau for questioning, where detectives are ready to put the final nail in his coffin. I was very excited. I thought we were going to get some closure to this case, finally some finality to it. Detectives get straight to the point. They play the recording of James' confession. James then tells us a story about how his cellmate, Ronald, had hatched a plan to get them out of jail, which is what we heard on the tape. But all along, Ronald was setting up James so that he could cut a deal with detectives. Unfortunately, after thinking it through, James isn't quite ready to take the rap for a murder he didn't commit. The minute you're called into you know, the booth of truth and you sit down and we start talking to you and you realize what exactly we're talking about, then suddenly that idea that was hatched at 2 o'clock in the morning, the risk-reward doesn't quite seem <laughs> to match up. But the question remains, how did the two know so many details about Deborah's murder? We find out that James is in the back of a patrol car with two deputies that were talking about the case. And their loose lips nearly sink the entire investigation. I mean, it is frustrating. I can't, you can't lie about that. You're back to square one. So it's back to a whodunit. Even the most experienced investigators can feel the pressure of an unsolved murder. And with murder on their minds, Mongo and Hayworth seek out some old-fashioned comfort food at their favorite haunt. And it is a joke, and it's full of irony. I own a donut shop in Ocala, Florida, uh, called Tastio Donuts. But the donut shop is not just a place for Mongo and Hayworth to blow their diets. When I'm able to leave work and work at the donut shop, it provides me a different perspective. And that is a way that I can relieve some of the stress that I have of dealing with those frustrations that, that come along with doing an investigation. With an investigation in danger of going cold, a hot cup of joe and an old-fashioned give these vets a chance to take stock of the case. The worst thing that you fear is that it goes, quote-unquote, cold. Because the minute it goes cold, you, you just feel despair. Deborah's son, Kurt, is also facing the grim possibility that her murder may never be solved. And especially after that much time had passed, shoot, you'd think that that person probably felt like they'd gotten away with it. But just when the six-month-old investigation is in danger of grinding to a halt, it receives a shot in the arm from a most unlikely source, Deborah's husband, Jake Rawls. Well, one night, um, I was at the house with her husband, and he said, hey, Kurt, come in here. I went in there, and he said, look at that. And he pointed to a little spot on the wall. He said, does that look like blood to you? So we called the sheriff's office, and the very next morning, they sent out a uh, crime scene representative. And she said, yeah, that does look sort of like blood. She says, I'll swab it, and we'll know here in a minute. Not only does the spot in Deborah's bedroom turn out to be blood, but it's not the only new blood found that night. My youngest sister happened to notice uh, a bag that had a new bra inside. 
And when she pulled it out, she noticed the blood spot on the bra, which she gave to the detectives as evidence. The bra was observed at the crime scene, but not collected by detectives. I did not consider the bra as a piece of evidence because I thought it was just taken out of the closet as the closet was being rummaged through and left on the floor. Fortunately, it's a major find. The blood from the bra and on the wall in the victim's bedroom matched the same person. And that person is not Deborah Rawls. It's the first evidence of foreign DNA at the scene of the crime. The blood samples are immediately entered into the National DNA Database, nicknamed CODIS. If we could get a DNA match, we would have Deborah Rawls killer. Deborah's family can only take a deep breath and wait. Will Deborah Rawls' killer finally be brought to justice? Six months have passed since the brutal murder of Deborah Rawls, and the folks in Summerfield, Florida, can only wait and pray that the killer will soon be found and life here can get back to normal. But investigators get their best lead yet. Foreign DNA found at the crime scene. The DNA sample of the unknown uh, person was tested against the CODIS system, uh, which is the DNA databank. It's another dead end. For the moment, the killer's DNA isn't in the database. At that time, I felt frustrated because the case was going to be extended, that we weren't going to be able to bring closure to the decedent's family. For good measure, the detectives clear Deborah's husband, Jake, and the other suspects in the case. But almost two years pass. And in 2006, we finally had a hit. Major Crimes, Mongolia. The news makes Detective Hayworth downright giddy. Boom. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very exciting day. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Up until the point, all the submissions that we submitted to CODIS met with negative results because the DNA that matched our evidence wasn't in the system yet. In this case, DNA profile was entered into CODIS in November of 2005, a year and so many months after the murder. The federal DNA database turns up a match to the DNA from the blood found in Deborah's house. It's a bolt out of the blue. The DNA comes back to Frederick Harris. He's a middle-aged man, 40-something years old, life of crime, in and out of correctional institutions, lives in Lake County, Florida, which is south of Marion County. He's also a convicted sex offender. And that is the reason his DNA had to be entered into CODIS. Deborah Rawls wasn't sexually assaulted, so police dig deeper to determine a motive. And a look at his rap sheet reveals that Harris also has a history of home invasions with a familiar M.O. Upon further investigation into those previous cases, uh, we learned at that time in, in the case that got him convicted as a sex offender, Freddie Harris actually entered into a female's residence with a knife in his hand, and he entered into the residence through a window. It's frighteningly similar to how Deborah Rawls was killed. The long investigation may finally be coming to a close. Cops waste no time tracking down Freddie Harris. The ex-con is living in a seedy end of Leesburg, Florida, just 18 miles from Summerfield. 
and parked in the vicinity is a late model faded red pickup truck, like the one Deborah's sister saw at the scene the day Deborah was killed. On March 8th, 2006, Leesburg, Florida police assist in the detention of 39-year-old Freddie Harris. Myself, another detective, and two supervisors uh, traveled to the area where he was living at. Freddie Harris was then brought down to the police department there uh, where I conducted a, a videotaped interview with him. Freddie Harris's demeanor at the time of the interview was, it was twofold. You can tell he was nervous, but he was also being cooperative. He was trying to paint himself in a good light. Harris denies ever being in the Rawls' home. It's, it's, it, I, it's not true. I, I ain't killed nobody. But Detective Mongaluzo has the undeniable proof that he's lying. When I confronted Freddie about the DNA evidence, he suggested that I was speaking of a heinous crime and that he didn't want to speak to me any longer. Never mentioned anything about the murder. All I mentioned was DNA. We know we have him at that point. Unable to explain why his DNA would be at Deborah Rawls' home, Harris knows his goose is cooked. So everything was starting to come together now that we knew we had the right person. Wasting no time, Mongo shares the breakthrough with Debbie's son, Kurt. Detective Mongaluso called about 11.30 at night, and he said, my sergeant and I will be there within an hour. So I said to my wife, you know, could this be the call we've been waiting for? It's been two years since Deborah Rawls was found stabbed to death in her own home. The agonizing wait to catch Debbie's killer is almost over. He says, I need to show you a picture, and I want you to tell me if you recognize this guy. And he showed me a picture, and I told him no. He said, his name is Frederick Harris, and we've arrested him for the murder of your mother. I was just elated. We could finally put to rest and know for a fact who was responsible. The news is a godsend. In my mind, it was hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You answered our prayers. But despite the discovery of the killer's DNA at the scene, Deborah Rawls' murder is no open and shut case. There were no fingerprints of his. There was no property recovered from him. No eyewitness evidence. For state's attorney Brad King, the investigation into the murder of Deborah Rawls has been a long, tough road. The only evidence was two drops of blood identified by DNA as being his at the house. And that was it. As the prosecutor presents the case to the jury, there's a shocking turn of events. The accused killer of Deborah Rawls brings the trial to an abrupt end. And it was one of the few times in a trial that I have ever actually seen a defendant stand up and say, here's what happened. His confession is a chilling tale. Frederick Harris was looking for a house that was unoccupied to burglarize. That was his M.O. Realizing that the coast was clear, Harris breaks in through a window. While inside the house rummaging through the closets and the drawers, 
Freddie Harris hears Deborah Rawls' vehicle pull up in the driveway. And instead of running out the back door and getting in his truck and driving off, he went to the kitchen, he got a large knife. And prepares to attack Deborah as she walks into the house. I believe he came up from behind her as she was walking down the hallway into her bedroom and grabbed her, fought with her, struck her several times, and then forced her into the bathroom and stabbed her twice. After murdering Deborah Rawls in cold blood, Freddie Harris proceeds to eliminate trace evidence of the crime. At that point, I feel Freddie Harris positioned her over the bathtub, cleaned the crime scene to go undetected, because Freddie at that point I feel later I learned, Freddie knows his DNA is on file somewhere. Took the knife with him when he went and went back to his truck and back out to the road and left. In exchange for his guilty plea, the state of Florida spares his life. And Deborah Rawls's family is spared a painful trial. Hearing Freddie Harris confess in open court was exciting for the fact that the family's finally going to have some closure. Uh, to their loss of their mother, Deborah Rawls. On February 5th, 2010, Freddie Harris is convicted for the first-degree murder of Deborah Rawls. Freddie Harris is serving a life sentence at a Florida state correctional facility. When Mr. Harris confessed, it was exactly what we had been praying for. He faced our family and just began to sob and tell us, how so sorry he was that he wasn't there to do that that day. But things just went really wrong and that that's how it ended. But for Deborah's sister, Brenda, the verdict is a bitter pill to swallow. And at first it was a little hard to not insist on the death penalty, but then I remembered that I had made a promise to God that Whatever his will was for this man, I would accept. What I miss most about my mom is just being with her. I miss that if we were to ever have kids that they would never know what a wonderful grandma they would have. The citizens of Summerfield breathe a collective sigh of relief as the pace of the sleepy southern town slows to a familiar crawl. But one thing is certain. It will never be the same again. <laughs>